Father, we pray that you would take your eternal truth and that you would write it on our hearts to know. And we would see you and we would see what it is that you desire from us. For your glory and your praise. In Christ's holy name, amen. I'm not going to read all of chapter 11 and chapter 12, though I would like to read all of these names, and I think it's important, as we'll talk about in the sermon. Uh, I'm not going to read them all tonight, because uh, we're doing two chapters. But Nehemiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, nine out of ten remained in other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And then he's going to list the sons of Judah... And he begins to list the sons of Benjamin, then he lists the priests there in verse 10 following, the Levites in verse 15 and following, the gatekeepers in verse 19 and following, and then he gives us some of the leaders there in verse 22 and following. Verse 25, and as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages. And he's going to then detail where they lived in these different villages outside. In chapter 12, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel. He is going to list them. And in the days of Joachim, in verse 12, were priests, heads of fathers' houses, and he gives a list of them. In the verse 22, in the days of Eliashib, and he gives the list of them and the Levites according to the heads of their homes. And then verse 27, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephthalites, also from Beth, Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmabeth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and the half of the elders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilal, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate to the east. 
The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Menamin, Micaiah, Elinoi, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonahan, Melchizedek, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahai as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service for their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You know, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Cities that used to be renowned and that dominated the ancient world, cities like Thebes, Carthage, Ephesus, Machu Picchu, Chichen Itza, Xanadu, they no longer exist. If you and I were to go to the sites of those cities, we would just see ruins that are there. Remember years ago, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, Lee and I were driving through Detroit. And I remember us passing boarded up building after boarded up building and seeing parks that were filled with overgrown trees and shrubs and parking lots that were filled with grass. And I remember turning to Lee and saying, this is what it looks like when a great city dies. They disappear. You know, a city that was built at one time to house 1.8 million people now is down to 700,000 people. And the biggest problem has been people fleeing the city. As the mayor said in one article I read this week, he said, the population number is the number by which we either win or we lose. But you go by Detroit today, and there's a restoration that's happening. There's a revitalization of the city that's happening. And why? Because people are moving back in. Jerusalem faced such a problem. The walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. And so there was now protection around the city, but the city was empty. It was vacant. 
Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, Nehemiah said this. He said, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The people had fled the city of Jerusalem because there was no longer protection there. There were, no law, there were no walls around it, and so they fled out to the countryside where it was easier to escape when foes came. You wouldn't be trapped in the city. And the city was run down, it was broken down, it was no doubt dirty, and it was no doubt unsafe. And so the Jews, they left. All the people were leaving. And it was a city that was a place that no one wanted to live in. But the problem is, is that this was the city that God had chosen to place His name. This was the holy city. This was the city that would mark His presence of dwelling with His people on earth. And so, as God said to Moses, and Nehemiah records in chapter 1, verse 9, Jerusalem was the place that God said that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. The, the walls were rebuilt. The city was not inhabited. It needed people. So clearly, in our text, very few people were volunteering to move in Jerusalem. They had all worked on the walls. They had all given incredible sacrifice to the building of the walls. They had given their time. They had given their talents. They had given their resources. Some of them, no doubt, had given their lives in the rebuilding of the wall. They'd been away from their families in the rebuilding of the wall. But now to actually move into the city, that was a higher cost to pay. Because now you had to leave home. And now you had to leave your jobs and your fields and the safety and security that you had there and move in there. But we are to give our lives to God. And the Jewish people at this time so readily demonstrate this. I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking that they could have echoed Paul's words before he ever spoke of that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. We're to give our lives to God. And so the leaders of the people move into Jerusalem in verse 1. The leaders lead the way. They move in first. And then they begin to cast lots, not as a way of turning to luck, but as a way to turning to providence. And turning to God and God's sovereignty. And they begin to cast lots to decide who will join them in the city. And they decide that one out of every ten families of the Jews that live in the land will move into the city with them. And so they begin casting lots. They gave their lives to God. This would have been no easy move, leaving family, leaving fields, leaving the comfort of their homes, moving into Jerusalem for a city renewal project, but they knew that their lives were not their own. These Jews were kingdom-centered people, and they were willing to follow the leading of the Lord, so much so that Nehemiah can say in verse 2 that these men willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. The lot was cast, they were chosen, and now they willingly decide to live in Jerusalem. It is that there was no reluctance on their part. They were yielding their lives entirely to the Lord's direction and the Lord's leading. I wonder what it would be like if there was a movement among people in our generation and in Christian church pews like this. Not just any old movement, but 
A movement where the people of God were willing to consider and where they were willing to entertain and where they were willing to act upon a different impulse than is normal in most of our decision making. What if one of the most fundamental areas of some Christian families' lives, vocation and place of residence, was decided primarily upon where I can best serve the kingdom? What if that's what drove our decision? Not by lots, but if we made some made our decisions about the location of our home or about the opportunity to become involved in a church plant or a missions opportunity or because the gospel is needed in that place, and so we are willing to move there. But what if some decided just to stay here because it could be of benefit to kingdom work here? Many of you in the first generation of URC told me testimonies of you doing that very thing, taking up that call. What we think we can serve that campus, and we think we can reach out to neighbors here, and we think we can help this church and its ministry, and so decided to stay here. Kingdom first. We seldom hear of a family or an individual who decides to accept this job or move to that place because, or even to stay where they are, because there's a church there that they could serve and assist. And I think that's a travesty. We consider everything else. We consider the schools and the parks and the affordability of housing and area recreation and whether they all become factors that seem to play into our willingness to consider moving to this or that part of the country or whether we want to stay here. And often it's after we've move somewhere, or we've chosen that place based upon any of these factors, that then we begin to look for a church. Why isn't it the reverse? Kingdom people. What if individuals and families began to consider moving to a new location so that they could help start or serve in a church plant or a young church? What if some of you decided to stay here because you wanted to serve in reaching out to students or internationals or neighbors in your community? Can you see the picture? Retired individuals and couples who don't rush off to warmer weather consider staying here or moving to that city over there because their wisdom and their experience and their stability and the free time that they have could assist the efforts in that church plant, in that church, or in this location. What if professional individuals with all of their flexibility and financial resources decided to pack up their homes and move across the state or country to assist in this church plant effort over there or staying here because they could model what it looks like before young people to live for Christ instead of always looking for upward mobility? What if young families actually considered where they could serve the church best over and above what location would provide the greatest place of comfort for their family? Or young individuals graduating from college and willing to take two years to lend their zeal and energy to a church planning effort instead of moving on to graduate school or finding their career path? What if? What if weather and upward mobility and schools and family, if those things weren't the primary draw, but the church was? 
I think if those things can be the reason that we will move here or that we will move here, then why can't the church be? We're to give our lives to God. And it's worth the giving. Nehemiah again, as he does in chapter 3 and chapter 7 and chapter 10, he lists the names of all these different people who moved into the city with their families. This may seem a little mundane to us, and I skipped over a lot of those names. Uh, We have read many of the names before in this book, but Nehemiah is recording these names for all time. Because these are individuals, these are real people who made a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And so he's recording their name for all time and all places so that they will have that respect and they will have that honor for generations upon generations that people will look back and say, that living flesh bodily person made a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And if you were connected to them, it would mean all the more to you. In fifth grade, I began doing genealogy. Uh, and that was one of my main hobbies growing up. And uh, I remember one summer when my family, I was in high school, and we went to Washington, D.C. for uh, a vacation for a week. And my family went out, and they went to the Lincoln Monument, and they went to the Washington, uh, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, all of those kind of sites. And I didn't go with them. Uh, what they would do is they would drop me off early in the morning at the National Archives. And I would hunker down with all of my papers and I would research all day and then they would come back and pick me up in the afternoon and tell me what they saw and I would tell them what I found. And uh, it was one of those days that I found my greatest discovery when I was doing genealogy, my, my favorite time of finding something. I was there and my grandfather, his maternal so my, my maternal grandfather, his parents, so my mom's dad, his parents came over from England. And he knew the date that they had come over on. He knew the ship they had come over on. He knew it was from this port in England to this port in the United States, from Liverpool to New York City. And he knew the name of the ship. And so I thought, well, this will be easy. I'll just look up the ship manifest, and I'll print it out for him, and I'll show him where his dad and his mom are at. And his brother came over as well and show them Show them on the manifest to my grandpa. Well, I got there at the archives, and I was looking it up, and all I could find was his dad. Couldn't find his mom. Couldn't find his brother. And so it took me about a day and a half. I tried every scenario I could think of, all kinds of different ships, all kinds of different ports, all kinds of different years, all kinds of different dates. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to look for the exact same ship coming from the exact same port to the exact same port on the exact same day just a year later. And there she was. I was looking through all these names, and her name just popped off the page. There she was with my grandpa's brother. Obviously, her husband had come over a year earlier, and he had worked to get established. And so she had made the sacrifice and stayed back and parented for a year by herself before she came over. I printed that off, and I brought it to my grandfather and showed it to him. And as he read it, His eyes welled up in tears, and I don't think I ever saw him more happy. When he saw her name on that list of names. Because she had made a sacrifice for their family. And her name meant something to him. 
Whatever ways we give of our lives to God for the sake of the kingdom, it's never forgotten and it's never lost. Because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And they're never erased. And all that we do for the sake of the kingdom is recorded. All that we give unto God is recognized and never forgotten. Not for all of eternity. And even as my grandfather celebrated his mother, so you are celebrated by angels, and so you are celebrated by the church triumphant, and so you are celebrated by your Christ. The saints in the New Jerusalem all have names, and every single one is recorded. But such living takes faith. It takes stepping out in faith and living in faith. And we see evidence of that in the text as the people give praise to God. This was no mere formal act on their part, but an act of worship. First, we're to give our lives to God, and second, we see that we are also to give our praise to God. All these people gather together, and Nehemiah details that the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the governors and the scribes and the leaders and the people, they they all gather together to give praise to God, and they're going to dedicate the wall. They're going to commission this wall before God and say, we didn't just build this wall for our safekeeping. We built this wall, oh God, for your glory. And now they're going to worship to his glory. First, though, they must purify themselves. And so the Levites purify themselves. This would have involved washings and sacrifices, and most likely they would have abstained from sex, and they would have fasted for some period of time. And then they purified all the people and the gates and the wall. There would have been sacrifices that were made. They would have taken blood and water, and they would have sprinkled it on the people and sprinkled it all over the walls. And then they gather the people into two great choirs. And Ezra takes one part of the choir, one part of the people, and Nehemiah takes the other part of the people. So you have the two great leaders of the nation, Ezra, who is the priest, and Nehemiah, who is the administrator, these two men that have played such a key role in the reestablishment of Jerusalem. And they will both grab together their people, and Ezra will start on one side on top of the wall, marching one way, and Nehemiah will start on the other side of the wall, marching the other way, and they're going to meet kind of antiphonal choir, John, singing to one another, hearing one another. It was a parade on top of the wall. I think it was a parade because of what Tobiah, that enemy, had said to him when they were building the wall. You remember that in chapter 4? And they began to build the wall, and he said, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. And so they're not just singing in front of the wall. They're not just singing and marching around the wall. They're going to march the entire city on top of the wall. Look what we've built by God's grace. Whole city. If we do the math, count the names here, and then you add most likely a spouse for each and maybe a couple of children for each. Most scholars think it was probably somewhere around 10,000 people. You have two choirs of 5,000 people marching around in a parade and singing at the top of their lungs. I want you to notice a couple of things about the praise they give to God. 
First, the praise is centered upon the people singing. There was a kind of antiphonal choir, one coming from one side and one coming from the other side. They had instruments. He details all these different instruments that they used, but these instruments were used in helping the people to sing. And that's the purpose of instruments in worship, purely to help the people to sing. It's the voice of God's people that is to be the main instrument in worship. It is we, the people of God, who give praise to God with our voices. That is what delights Him. That is what exalts Him. All of the instruments are there just to support our voices. And so when they drown out the voices of God's people, or when they become the show, or when they become the focal point, it ceases to be worship. It is the voice of God's people that is the main instrument in worship, and that God receives glory from. It is an odd thing about our faith that we sing like we do. Think about even other religions and Other faith traditions, most of them, they don't sing. They chant, or they pay professional singers. But the expectation is, of the Christian community, is that the people will sing. The people. And that we'll sing full-throated with all that we are. That's one of the things I most love about this church. John and I talk about it all the time. That this is a church that sings. And you should sing at the top of your lungs even if you can't sing well. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And some of you, it's just a noise. But you can make it. That's all it commands. And so we make it unto the Lord. Second, notice that they sang, as Nehemiah says in verse 45, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. They were worshiping according to how God had directed them to worship in the Scriptures. Their worship was regulated by the Word of God. These weren't things that they were creating. These weren't machinations of their minds. They were singing as God directed them to sing. And they were singing psalms. We can't help but believe that they sang Psalm 48. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. I do not believe that we need to sing exclusively songs, but I do believe that we should inclusively sing songs. It's the hymn book of God's people and has been for millennia. And I think it's one of the great failings of the church today that we don't sing songs as much as we should. Calvin said this to you before, but I love it. He said, you know, the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. That is that every feeling you have, every single thought that you've had, every kind of struggle that you've had, it's there in the Psalms. And so as you and I sing the Psalms, 
We can express every single thing that's going on within us. But we're not just expressing that. We're expressing the very Word of God. And it has a shaping influence upon the mind and the heart. And it sows the seed of the Word in your mind and your heart. We should sing more of the Psalms. Third, notice that joy marked their singing. It says, quite a change when Ezra first arrived in the city with returned exiles. We're told in Ezra 3, verse 12, that he said, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. That is, when all of these old men came back from exile with Ezra, the first exiles returned back to the land. And then when Nehemiah began to raise the temple once again to the Lord, all of these old men, they began to cry. They began to weep. Because they remembered what that temple had been, the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And they lamented over that loss. But now there is this great change. We're told in verse 43 of chapter 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God, had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The whole nation, all the people, men, women, and children, all gathered together to give praise to God. There's a child this morning that was uh, crying in the service, and I can feel people start to get anxious. You know, oh, when's that going to stop? And I think there's a time where we have to bring children out of the service, but, but we should love to hear those little sounds coming from all over the pews. Right? If the, the church isn't crying, the church is dying, Right? need to hear little cries here and there. This is a covenant family and the faith is continuing on. The whole nation, the whole church is gathered together, men, women, and children. And they're worshiping God together. And they're worshiping them together in joy. Joy is mentioned four times in just this one verse. We're to give praise to God and much of our praise should be joy-filled. It won't always be. Now, there are times to lament, as John was pointing out in our service this morning, and lament should be a regular part of our service. These old men, they lamented when they saw the temple being rebuilt. There is time for sorrow and worship. But there should also be a great time of rejoicing in worship. Think of the Reformers and Calvin, that, that phrase that they often use, post-tenebrous lux, after darkness light. And there's darkness that is always followed by light because darkness cannot win. It can't win. God has shown the light of His Son in the world and He has the victory. Darkness never wins. It may for a time hold sway. It may have an effect, but it does not last because light comes. And so the people of God have reason to rejoice even when things are hard and especially when things are good. And we of all people as Christians, especially be filled with joy in our worship. Because we're on this side of the coming of Christ. We know that the final victory is won. We know that light is coming in the morning. We know that darkness can't hold sway. We know it. 
notice their joy has an effect upon the world around them. That's one of the most wonderful statements, I think, there in verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They were singing so loud. They were so joyous in the Lord that that joy could be heard far away. should be motivated, knowing that there is a watching and there is a listening world. We must not only be concerned with the lack of joy we have for our own sake, but also for the sake of the world that is watching. We are to be salt and light in this world. We are to be a city set upon a hill. And sour-faced, gloomy, complaining Christians are not good spokespersons for the glory and grace of the Christian faith. Who would want to surrender their lives to that? doesn't mean we put a smile on, a fake smile all the time, but there can be joy even in the midst of trial. How can we talk to people about peace, which surpasses understanding, or God of love and mercy, or the sweet fellowship of the saints, or how good it is to walk with Christ, how much joy is given by the filling of the Spirit, and yet it not show on our faces. Make no mistake, the world is watching and it's making judgments based upon what it sees and what it hears from us. Again, we don't want to put on a charade. We don't want to play a part. But we're to seek after joy. And we're to train ourselves in joy. God gave them this gift of joy, as is noted in verse 43, and it is a gift. In fact, it is a gift of the Spirit, but it is also something we seek after. It's also something that we strive after. I remember wrestling with this years ago and wrestling that I wasn't seeing much joy in my own life and thinking, ah, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It should just be there. And I remember as I was reading through the epistles and seeing this refrain over and over, rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I think of Habakkuk 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's a command. 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? What's the will for my life, O Lord? That you rejoice in me. You have joy in me. That is at least part of it. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also something we pursue. And it's something we daily are to seek to discipline ourselves to. And to chase after. Find joy in those little and those big moments. Joy in the Christian life go hand in hand. We're to give our lives to God, we're to give our praise to God, and finally, we're to give generously to God. 
final portion of this chapter, it involves the people of God going to the house of God and bringing their tithes and their offerings to support the worship of God. When we give our lives to God, I think most would readily acknowledge that, that we are to do that. We are to give our praise to God. There is none that would deny that. We're also to give generously of our material wealth to God, and that is often the most difficult, isn't it? But those who have received much give much. We give sacrificially. We give to the point that it costs. That's giving. And it's actually one of the greatest ways that we give our lives and that we give praise to God. As Jews, after all of this toil on the wall and all of this opposition and all of this rebuilding, they didn't just close the book and say, ah, we've done well. Let's go back to our homes, enjoy our families. Let's go back to our fields. And That's not how they live. Rather, they decided that they were going to give their whole lives to the Lord, and so they were willing to yield. To yield themselves, if it was their lot that was drawn, and it was God's will that they moved into the city, they would go. They decided that they were going to give praise to God, and so they come together as a nation, and they're going to worship Him with full-throated voices and with whole hearts. And then they're going to turn over their material possessions. They're going to give to the worship of God. Their entire lives surrender to Him. It's a beautiful picture. This is how the church is to go forward. This is how the kingdom is to go forward. This is what the people of God are doing. Not to rest on what they have done. Not to say, we have already done this. We've done that. But to keep going forward. And so they do. And yet, we see in the final sermon from this book in a couple of weeks that Darkness comes once again, and they don't continue to live for the kingdom and live for the king. It's how quickly we forget that we have to keep marching on, have to keep yielding our entire lives to Christ, have to keep worshiping Him, have to keep giving unto Him. It is so quickly lost. So we need to safeguard our hearts and our minds. We'll see that in a couple weeks. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are God who is worthy of us surrendering our lives to, that you are God who is worthy of our praise, and that you are God who is worthy of all of our gifts. We are thankful for that which we give to you, it is not lost, that which we yield to you of our lives is not lost, but rather that Christ himself is gained, and that you are a good God to your people and a rewarder to those who seek after you. We give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.